Oh, and by the way, can you hear my dryer? <laughs> I can hear your dryer. It makes a nice beat in the background. Uh, let me turn it off. Give me a second. Hey, Roman. Did you do anything over the holiday break? I watched Wonder Woman 1984. So did I. Did you uh, risk life and limb and go to the theater? <laughs> yes. No, I'm just kidding. At home. Streaming. Same here. So should we talk about it for this podcast? I guess. Well, cue up a long, informative, slightly tedious introduction for us. I don't think I need to because I'm lazy, but also because everyone knows that Wonder Woman 1984 starring Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, directed by Patty Jenkins. Is it Gadot or Godot? It is Gadot. I looked it up before. It's Gadot. People pronounce it Godot, but it's actually Gadot. Mm. As I was saying, Wonder Woman 1984, the sequel to the 2017 film Wonder Woman, also starring Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, and directed by Patty Jenkins. That's some really good marketing. And believe me, I know my good marketing. But unfortunately, WW84, as it is called, I think, isn't getting the critical and audience acclaim of the first film. And I know for a fact that both of us didn't really care for it either. I'm Roman Segel, and I'm disappointed. And I'm Ryan Joe, and I'm also disappointed. And we are two dudes who normally shit on great comics and have decided to cast our gaze on a film that really let us down. But in the spirit of the holidays, let's first be generous. I felt there were a few redeeming qualities to Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, did you, Roman? Yeah, I think, I think it kind of knew what it wanted to be at the beginning. And it slowly lost it. And so to start at the beginning, it it leaned into the camp. It leaned into the era. It had fun. It, you know, it decided to make choices. You know, Wonder Woman's lasso is now Spider-Man's webbing. Like, and those are all cool things. You know, I think there's a kinetic energy to the action shots. Like, I usually don't obsess over the action shots in superhero movies, but you know, for this one, after I was disappointed, I was like, well, the action scenes were good. I, uh, yeah, there was a lot that I liked about it. It's just, there, there's a saying, right? Two scoops of ice cream and two scoops of shit is four scoops of shit. What about I, you? I, I, you know, I mean, yeah, I liked, I, it was a fun, poppy looking movie. The action sequences were good, but we're kind of in an era where you, you kind of expect more. I mean, I'm Captain America, the first Avenger, was a fun poppy movie with cool action sequences. Um, what I did like about Wonder Woman 1984 that I didn't like about the first Wonder Woman is that they introduced some vulnerability to Wonder Woman in this one, both physical vulnerability uh, as well as emotional vulnerability. Whereas in the first film, what kind of bothered me a little bit about that was that Everything was just too easy for her. She'd show up, she'd kick everyone's ass, and then she'd go home and look great. Um, and here there was actually like an internal conflict, you know, between should she basically, um, you know, Chris Pine, her lover who died in, in the first film is resurrected through some magical hoodoo. And monkey paw. She, monkey paw. And she, and, and it saps, and in bringing him back, it also saps Wonder Woman's abilities. So she's much more physically vulnerable. She's not nearly as powerful and it makes it harder for her to save the world. So kind of introducing that conflict of, do I renounce my wish and regain my powers? Um, you know, you, I liked at least seeing that conflict in her because she was sort of conflictless in the in the previous uh, movie. And also the fact that it weakens her. It made her more vulnerable. You know, so there's this element where when she gets into these physical battles, these huge battles, she can be hurt. She might not come out alive. And I felt that was really missing um, in, in the first Wonder Woman. I think seeing it in the theater, had I seen it in the theater, I would have papered over a lot of the issues I had with the movies. Because when you're in the theater, the lights are off, you're immersed, right? You're, you're in the movie. Um, you can't say anything. Um, you don't want to shout out the screen, even though you want to, because there's other people in there. If you got to go to the bathroom, you're going to miss a part of the movie. Like, you know, um, you're immersed, you're entranced, and you're part of the movie. You melt in with the movie. And when you're watching on your couch and you hit pause to go to the bathroom, you decide you want a snack. If you have a kid, like a lot of us do, you split the movie into two viewings. So literally, when you stop the movie, you think about it for 12 hours or 24 hours till you watch it again. 
And I think I would have been a lot more forgiving had I seen it in theaters because mm. I knew I was getting spectacle, right? With a little bit of plot, a little bit of character development in between, but I was there for spectacle and explosions and seeing Wonder Woman on the screen and winking at the little black girl, you know, who's an Easter egg to another character. Like all of these things, I would have been there for it. Like, and I, had I seen it in theaters, I would probably would have given it a B plus, not the C minus that my hypercritical gaze gave it. And I think the other piece of it, Ryan, is this movie had so much, we all wanted to see this movie in the summer and we weren't allowed to for obvious reasons. And the movie theaters, you know, this was one of the first movies they decided to bring to us in this new format. Like not the first, but the first blockbuster, you know, mm. that we got early as a Christmas present. And after a really shitty year, I was like, I want to have some fun with Wonder Woman 1984. Take me back to a time, right? And because I was watching it on my couch and I could hit pause and go to the bathroom and I split it into two viewings, you know, over two nights. Because of that, I think I was just more hyper aware of all the things I didn't like about it. What you just said um, about giving the movie probably uh, more appreciation if you'd seen it in the theater is actually really interesting to me because I've been thinking a lot about that, about the way we process the content we watch via streaming versus in a theater. And even when it comes to streaming versus, um, you know, being able to binge watch versus being able versus having to wait, you know, another week for an episode. It changes the way we perceive the content we're, we're viewing. And I think that's actually especially true for a special effects blockbuster like Wonder Woman, because these special effects were really cool. Um, there are some really awesome moments visually where Wonder Woman is flying and it's, it's, it can. You want to see that in IMAX. Yeah, it can enrapture you in a theater. It can fully engage you. It can place you there in a way that, as you mentioned, you can't get it, you know, watching on your flat screen TV in your living room with your daughter crying um, or, you know, you needing to pause it so you can, it can use the restroom. So a lot of that magic, a lot of that power that Wonder Woman 1984 could have had is gone. And I actually, I'm kind of thinking also about the director of, of Dune, which is going to be released on HBO Max. He was furious when he heard that. Uh, Chris Nolan was furious when he heard uh, that Warner Brothers, Warner Media was releasing all its movies on HBO Max. Um, and both of those directors are known for their big spectacle, you know, engagement driving, you know, big screen movies. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're kind of, probably thinking about how audience engagement is really going to suffer once it's, you know, viewed on, on, on a smaller screen and, and not where, you know, where you're riveted in the seat in a theater that's dark. And, you know, that's the only thing you're focused on. I want to give you a billion dollar idea. And give me a billion dollar idea. I need one. I need a billion dollar idea. I'm going to release it on this podcast where people go for billion dollar ideas and auntie pinky. I know you live in Hollywood. So take this one. No, she doesn't. She lives in Oakland. Yeah, it's California. It's all the same. Anyway. Oh, ramen. Oh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll move on from that one. Here's the idea. And it's not going to make Christopher Nolan. It's not going to solve all of his problems. But when you release a movie, a blockbuster, a theatrical release on streaming for the first month, when you release it, you don't get to pause it. So you can you can choose appointment viewing because the kids got to go to bed. I'm going to start the movie at nine. But once you start streaming that movie, there's one intermission, maybe. I mean, it's a preset. The, the one, or you either get one pause or at the hour mark or at the 50% mark where there's a good scene break that the director can choose. Similar to in India in theaters, they have intermissions for their four-hour Bollywood movies. But you don't get to pause it. So you have to. You, it, it's a forced immersion. This thing, this train's going to keep moving. You don't get to pause it whenever you want to. So it's kind of a forced immersion. Like, uh, we, we got to watch this. It's starting. <laughs> we, it's literally, and again, appointment viewing is fine. You want to start at nine, you want to start at nine 30. Wonder Woman was not released at midnight. It was released at 12 noon. So people could open their Christmas presents first, but that's the billion dollar idea. If you've got to do it, if you want to release it at home, force people to immerse themselves in it, force people to turn off their phones because the movie's going to keep streaming. It's not going to pause for you to check your Facebook feed. But it's not just about the pause option. It's no, also I know. It's about... the, the, the cinematic part, too. I get it. I can't solve that. I can't solve that one. Well, Ramen, that's the other half of the billion-dollar idea. You got to no, solve that, it. No, that's how you make it a $2, $2 billion. billion idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> baby steps. Baby steps. 
All right, know, so I, gen- I, I, I genuinely do think not being able to pause something once you start streaming it would make a hell of a difference. Yeah. Well, okay, you said earlier that, uh, you know, watching Wonder Woman in your living room versus a theater made you more cognizant of the issues you, you had with, with the movie. And, you know, I guess this is the part of the podcast where you start shitting on everything. So, well, but, but, but to be clear, to back into my billion dollar idea, part of that cognizance in my living room was because I could take breaks from it. That's what it was. Because I can break from the screen. To be clear, when I'm watching The Mandalorian on my phone on my commute into New York City, um, like in the before times, or when I melted into the show, those moments when you're melted into the show on a small phone, on your TV, in the big screen, that's when you can't criticize it as much because you're lost in it. And so anything you can do to the experience to let someone lose themselves in it will allow you to be forgiving. But let's get to the shitting. Um, (laughs) So many things. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I mean, look, I, I'm jumping on the bandwagon, and I loved the first Wonder Woman movie. The only thing, there's only one thing I didn't love about the first Wonder Woman movie, and that was, like, the video game fight scene at the end. Like, it could have been more subtly done when Ares is revealed, all these things. Like, But for it to be a video game fight, fight scene. And to be fair, what I loved when I saw the trailers for Wonder Woman in 1984 was like, oh, this is a lighthearted take. This is going to be reminiscent of Linda Carter, etc., even though that was in the 70s. But I didn't mind the camp, to be very clear. I loved the shopping mall scene. I loved all the 80s references. I loved the periodness of it. I loved the the magic lasso being like a fighting implement. Like, that's fine. Lean into it. Like, I liked some of the other DC movies where they leave Zack Snyder behind, like Shazam and Aquaman, and just choose to fully embrace the director's vision. And it's just... Sorry, go ahead. Well, just uh, by the way... Another fun fact: Linda Carter is in an after a post credits scene. Yep. If you, uh, if you guys, just in case you the guys, missed it, I actually scene. missed it. Mid credits. I'm sorry. I actually missed it because I just turned it off, uh, kind of angrily. But um, yes, something to stick around yeah. for. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, the this is what makes me mad about it because these were fixable items, minus some of the codependent relationship that she had with uh, Steve Trevor, Chris Pine's character. Um, which almost disempower Wonder Woman a little bit. Never mind the the symbolism of her bringing him back and therefore she lost her power. There's there's really something there, to, to be clear. But it's literally just gaping plot holes. I, and I, I just got to rattle some of them off because they just made me so angry. Like, I can suspend my disbelief that a man can be rip, bit, bitten by a radioactive spider. I can suspend my disbelief that there is an island of Amazons with superpowers. Like, I can do that. But there's other things where they broke the mold. So they go steal the plane. The plane is fueled. What? How is the plane fueled? Because it's like a Smithsonian hall pass to the Dulles Field. The plane would not be fueled. What do they do in the plane for three hours? They go to Cairo. They leave Cairo immediately. Uh, At the end of the movie, the one thing that really killed me, look, once you recount all the wishes, once you take them all back, cool. The wall disappears in the Middle East. But the consequences are still there. Like when he goes and rescues his son, there's violence and stuff strewn all over the streets. The Russians launched their missiles. Those are real missiles that got launched. <laughs> Those don't disappear. <laughs> like the American missiles disappeared. So there were just so many like gaping plot holes that they were just like giant plot holes that took away. Like I was willing, any good movie, you get one or two things to miss but when you miss massive things throughout it everything else becomes unforgivable it's the two scoops of shit that makes it four scoops of shit so anyway i'm done i i I agree with you for the plot holes i actually would remember i was watching with sophie my wife and i I was just like how the hell did they get to cairo i mean that thing had fuel in it but i was also i think a little bit more forgiving of the plot holes because as you mentioned in the very beginning the movie sets out its tone it's going to be campy it's going to be weird it's going to be sort of like cartoonish and i i i'm i for, i for, i'm i forgive certain you know lapses in well how do you get from point a to P, b is that really realistic even as i acknowledge that it is you know kind of a problem what I really had a problem with with Wonder Woman 1984, though, was that the rules that they set up kept changing. So, like every the time wish you have rule, a fantasy, the wish rule, not the wish. Well, every all the rules. Every time you have a fantasy world, you have rules. Like Harry Potter, there are certain things he can do with magic and certain things he can't do. 
uh, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, they've got certain rules and certain parameters that, you know, the characters have to adhere to. And same with Wonder Woman. And the issue with me is that oftentimes they would break the rules kind of in the middle of it for an inexplicable reason. Like, for instance, she's flying the plane and suddenly she has the power to imbue invisibility to the plane. Now, I know that's fan service because Wonder Woman does have an invisible plane, but it comes at the expense of, like, we established Wonder Woman's power in the first movie. She's super strong. She has this lasso that makes you tell the truth and reveals the truth. Uh, she can jump really high, and she's badass. So the whole thing of her being able to imbue invisibility, it just kind of, like, comes out of nowhere. Another thing is at the end, she well, starts and, and, and You know what's funny? At the end, later on, when they come back to her Batcave, she shows him the computer, shows her the armor. You could have had something like that earlier on where, yeah, I've been studying all the texts and learning all the laws of the ancient Greeks. You could have breadcrumbed it up. Yeah, that exactly. It so that it wasn't uh, like, uh, I don't know what the term it's not do a ex machina it's ex machina like, yeah but it's got out of the machine yeah but the, it's it's not a macguffin and that's even the wrong term too but it's like had they set it up that what has she been doing for 80 years show us all the books on her thing about like ancient greek science or whatever anyway yes and, and the wishes thing was also a big issue also because it's not clear you know, I actually like uh, Pedro Pascal, who he's played the villain. Um, I forgot the I forgot the villain's name. Um, the Prince of Dorn, Gilbert. Uh, something the Godfrey. Of, yeah, right. Mando. Some, no, let's just call some, him Mando. Ma Mando. <laughs> the villain. It works for the Mando. <laughs> um, he he, you know. So so I actually like the physical toll it takes on him whenever he uses his. Power. And actually, Mandel's vulnerability as a villain was actually something I really enjoyed. He was, to me, the most compelling character out there because, you know, you could see he's really motivated to not be a loser, to kind of impress his son. I mean, that's stuff that's that's actually kind of heartbreaking because, you know, you, you see him, you see he was like kicked around as a kid. He struggled to make something of himself. And but they didn't show enough of that till the end. They didn't show enough didn't, of that. But you could kind of see it infusing the, his character and the way he played him in the beginning. You know, he's like, I'm not a loser. Don't you call me a loser. You know, he has this sort of, um, it's this sort of neuro neurosis around being perceived as a loser. Almost, almost, almost Trumpian. Trumpian. Almost Trumpian. But much more sympathetic uh, because he actually loves his son. Um, and so, and, and, and then he kind of absorbs the stone, which gives him the power to grant wishes. And it takes this physical toll, which I thought was great. But what was unclear to me until kind of the end was like how the wishes actually work. He has to kind of have somebody, you know. He has, he has to take has something from the wish. Oh. Somebody, yeah, yeah. But even then, it's sort of like he has to, he, he has to grant wishes. And in granting the wish, he can take something back and use the power of him. It's the mechanics of that fundamental concept, which was central to the conflict in Wonder Woman. Um, because it was so undefined, I, I, I felt... Um, it almost kind of made the threat much less of a threat. And also the other thing is that if you can, if you have this amazing power, why the fuck do you still need to be an oil man? I mean, you are so beyond that at this point. You're but, but, God you know, that's, all, that's, that's kind of all he knew. And so he was using that as his operating system. And after the middle East, to be clear, after the middle East, he moves beyond that. He goes to the president and he beams it out to the world. And I don't know what, his end, that, that's the thing that really bothered me. What's like, that? Because well, the first end game was get rich from oil and oil rights. Cool. Right. I'm Makes using sense. my power for that. But then his next thing when he goes to see the president is, okay, absolute power. Literally, everyone follows me. I have your authority. Okay, I get that. But then when he wants to beam it out to the world and you see the chaos starting, and again, that and maybe that's fine. He didn't realize what he was asking for. He takes it back when he realizes because it just starts to sow chaos. But he actually is okay with the chaos. He's okay with being an agent of chaos yeah. with everyone getting their, wish and the their wishes and the unintended consequences until it starts to harm his son. So I kind of get it, but it's... But to uh, what, what end? What, why why what, is he doing this? Yeah, what you, where you could have saved it. Where you could have saved it. And I thought a lot about this the day after is to bring it back to Wonder Woman, these ancient gods, these ancient powers. Ares was the one from the the previous movie. And had you brought it back to an actual god, and they, they you know, the um the Mayan thing, they kind of talked to it. It's effectively Loki. 
a god of mischief sort of thing. And had you brought it to something in a persona where he has not necessarily become the persona, but because he became the stone, all of a sudden, because he's sowing this chaos, that's what that god wanted. Like, Ares wanted war in the world, and he caused World War One, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. In this movie, let's just call him Loki, whoever the, the imbuer of power of the Wish Stone was. But now, that's not what Mando wanted. Um, and it's, it's actually a character name from the comics. It's driving me crazy that I can't remember it. But um, that would have made it better. Oh, okay, now you're an agent of chaos. You've been possessed by this thing. Now Wonder Woman has to appeal to your humanity and your son to bring you back from the brink of possession of this god. Like, this is what kills me about the movie. There are ways you could have made it work. And the story writing credits, Jeff Johns, uh, who's one of the major DC writers who brought Oh, wow. I didn't know he, I didn't know actually he was, uh, he was one of the writers on this one. Opening credits, Patty Jenkins, Jeff Johns, and some other dude or girl. And that's what makes me angry about it. It's like, you could have thought through this more. You could have made this work. And and here's, I think we're being hypercritical, and that's how you bring it back to quarantine comics. We read the materials. We know the materials. So we are, and not even the materials, we know the medium. So we're going to be critical about storytelling mechanics and the universe you create, like you said with Harry Potter. And maybe my mom and dad or your aunt, your auntie Pinky isn't going to care as much. They just, hey, it's cool. I saw a thing. Linda Carter was at the end. But that's lazy. It's like I, you yeah. literally could have solved these problems. I think people do care about that. They might, you know, you know, it's it's sort of inherent in the storytelling, understanding the motivation of the characters, understanding the way the world works. You know, in Star Wars, the Force has certain rules. There are things the Force can do. There are things the Force can't do. <laughs> or or as, Harrison large... Ford says, as Harrison Ford says, that's not how the Force works. Exactly, right? You And you have to adhere to that because that's what you said. And once you start breaking away from that, which they actually kind of do in Star Wars, but that's a separate discussion, um, people start people start to feel betrayed. Like, wait, what was I invested in? This is this is this is cheating, and you know, and that that also goes to what you were saying about the motivation of the villain. You know, part of that rule set is what makes these characters, you know, tick. Tick. What what makes them do what what makes them do what they actually do, um, and when that's not defined, um, people audiences notice that whether they articulate it or not, they they notice it. It feels like an absence, or it feels like sloppy story storytelling, which, in fact. It is. And that's what makes me mad. That's what really makes me mad about the comic book genre. Um, and I think we're at peak comic the book. Comic, right the now. comic book, the comic book to movie genre? Yes, yes. The com- comic book okay. to movie and TV show genre. Look, when it came out, it was all grim and gritty. Dick Tracy, Tim Burton, Tim Burton's version of Batman, etc. Blade, blah, 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 blah. And precursor of the MCU the Sony Spider-Man movies and the Fox X-Men movies are like, okay, hang on, let's ground this a little bit more. But where you start to like go off the rails is where you just turn into a cash grab. People are going to show up to see it because, oh, they want to see another Wolverine movie. Yeah, they do want to see another Wolverine movie, but they want to see another Wolverine movie that has all the same character limits or universe limits that any good movie, anything in the medium has to adhere to. It's not all spectacle. And I'm not going to say the MCU movies are great, but they force themselves into a rule set for the most part, minus the time travel. But it's, that's what's missing. That's this movie felt like a blatant cash grab, not Mm -hmm. because of the gimmicks. I'm okay with the gimmicks. I want to see Wonder Woman in the eighties. I want to see the magic lasso as, as Spider-Man's webbing. Like I want to see her fly. I want to see the invisible plane. I want to see all that, but there's a way to do it that doesn't break the rules that doesn't break the universe at like it's the good tellings of character drama of there's just basic things to do to tell a good story on the big screen or the small screen and it felt lazy that's what made yeah. me mad about this movie it could have been not it could have been pretty good i won't go as far as great but it could have been pretty or really damn good and it had that promise you can see it in the trailers um you can see it in moments of the film and it's just a couple of parts where they scoop on the shit yeah. through just pure laziness. 
Well, I mean, what you're saying is that's why genres burn out. I mean, Westerns were super popular in like the 50s. And then there were a whole bunch of really shitty Westerns. And people were just like, I don't really want to watch Westerns anymore. And same with rom-coms in the 90s and the early 2000s, right? I mean, they were really popular for a while. And then they got really shitty. And people just stopped caring about them. And Yeah, but you can't. You know, what, what makes me mad about movies like Wonder Woman and Black Panther, I said in our text, like, you know, it's kind of like Black Panther 2 can't do this. Because there aren't enough movies with strong female leads. There aren't enough movies with strong minority leads. And I'm sorry, I will put the pressure on them. And I'll put it on Patty Jenkins. Like, I, you could have done better. And it's it's pretty good, but it's just, is, and it's Wonder Woman. It's one of the crown jewels of female characters, right? Like, there was a shitty Holly Berry Catwoman movie, but no one cares because it's Catwoman. I should also and, remind you of the Electra movie starring Jennifer Garner, or maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> you would again a, a B or a C character, right? Electra in season two of Daredevil is artfully done, so it's not as good as Frank Miller did it. But uh, again, take the care with these things because you're only going to get a couple of shots at it. And again, it's Wonder Woman, one of the big three uh, in the DC universe. Yeah, I. I actually think there's a big missed opportunity when it comes to the representation of female uh, superheroes or female of heroines. Um, and it's that they all sort of have the same personality right now. It's sort of like they're all sort of plucky and determined. And right now it seems like the studios aren't allowing them to be flawed like they are the male here at superheroes, like Tony Stark, who... Um, who is an arrogant asshole and needs to learn to be a hero or Peter Parker who really tries hard to do the right thing, but keeps screwing up or Thor who is basically just a big frat boy or Batman who has mommy and daddy issues and decides to dress up like a latex bat in order to, to solve them. I feel like the, the heroines, you know, it, they all kind of have that same sort of I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna power through everything and I'm gonna win, which is great. But they don't have the human flaws, which makes some of the male heroes a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more memorable. And I think part of that is we're still kind of in this phase of representation, and hopefully the next phase we're gonna start seeing these characters actually be much more human. Um, with all of the the mishaps and the mistakes and the flaws that you know that 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 entails, and I feel like Wonder Woman actually does kind of fall into that trap. Uh, Gal Gadot is is you know wonderful to to look at, but she, um, you might as, want to rephrase. She's not very charismatic. Well, I want to. Yes, I. She is wonderful to look at for the obvious statement, but I think she brings. She can bring the right character to the character. I think she's not a what great actress. I believe that she's Diana. And that's that's a testament not just to her looks, okay. but to her acting and the way she carries and delivers the lines. To be clear, she's not just very attractive, as Diana Prince, Wonder Woman is. But she is, to me, she is Wonder Woman. Like, as much as Tony uh, McGuire is Peter Parker. We can argue that. And I, I yeah. love that. But the I, thing... The thing that bothers me about the Wonder Woman movies is I don't have to call it the reverse Bechtold test, but at least in Wonder Woman 1, she was entering the man's world and her guide was a man. And yes, she fell in love and they slept together and she's the love of her life. And that was a good part of the story. But what I don't like, the the Bechtold test is, right, can the, the female characters in a book or a movie have have their own plot or drama that has nothing to do with the man? And for the most part in Wonder Woman 84, and even Chris Pine calls her out on it in his character of Steve Trevor towards the end is like, you got to get over me. Like, and that doesn't do the cause any justice. Like she, everything about her in this movie is her one wish in life was to bring this man back and everything revolves around him. And that was really upsetting. And again, she made statements in the movie about how she's awesome. I just want this one thing. I don't know. It's, um... Yeah, I hear, that, you're, I hear what you're yeah, saying, but it did give her that kind of emotional complex. Well, I don't want to say emotional complexity. I think that's a little bit overstated, but just for the sake of shorthand, we'll just call it emotional complexity. It gave her <laughs> an internal conflict that she had to deal with. 
Um, and, you know, the fact is that this dude is sort of like the most significant human relationship that she's that she's had. So kind of placing him in in peril, um, being in a situation where she has to give that up, you know, that's basically as high as as high the dramatic uh, as high uh, dramatic stakes you can get with with Wonder Woman. I mean, it's kind of the same thing with Superman, short of Doomsday coming down and beating the shit out of him. It's sort of like you have to imperil the humans around him. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah, she is kind of doing this for a man, but I think the bigger thing here is that it is what fundamentally drives her internal conflict between do I give this guy up or do I save the world? And to me, that that kind of redeems it. That's fair. I just said that. No, it's fair, but it's. I you're you're right. They had to set up the pining that this was my one love. She the pining, the Chris pining, <laughs> the best of the Chris's. Shh. They they have to set it up for you to understand the stakes of what she's going to give up. Yeah, um, that's fair. I just yeah, and, and that's fair. Okay, it was well enough done, but it's like, and I love Chris Pine being in these movies. He's a great Steve Trevor, but there's a lot of really good Wonder Woman stories that don't feature Steve Trevor. There's a lot of great Superman stories that don't involve Lois Lane or Spider-Man stories that don't involve Mary Jane. And again, with the godlike figures, you do need the kind of human foil to teach them. But, and you do need a supporting cast in movies and films. Uh, And, you know, there's, I'll I'll, I'll give the movie one credit. Um, In the White House fight at the end. (laughs) And you see this in all the movies, right? Where there's like the main hero and then the sidekick the main hero is like knocking everybody out and the sidekick the whole time is having a fight with like one guy (laughs) and when it's over he punches out or he or she punches out the one guy and that's what happened with steve trevor he's clearly diana's inferior and they chose to show that in that moment in the white house and it was great i want to ask you about sort of the freaky friday body swap incident uh that that basically brings steve trevor chris pine back to life because it kind of disturbed me um because i mean he's still why yeah why do you need to do it yeah you've already got all the magic powers in the world why can't you just have him magically appear yeah why do you have to like put him in the body of another man like what happens to this i mean this guy this other man has a life of his own he's an engineer he's got his own drives and dreams and suddenly he's like replaced by where does that original person go I mean, is he just gone? If he, well, and, and at the, and at the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, he shows up right when they're like staring right, at the happy right. people. And I, I, I turned to my wife. I was like, "She's been boning that guy." Yes, yes. She's been like, she's like, she's like, I've had sex with your body, and you don't even know it. I mean, that's basically the relationship Wonder Woman has with him. I mean, honestly, I mean, how would you? Is that is that rape? Did Wonder Woman because because rape it's not even, they, even, they even show they make it a point like. You could have undone that at the beginning in the scene where he looks in the mirror and everyone sees him as that guy, not as Steve. You know, like it's not like that guy had relationships and access that helped the plot along. Then you could have no. used that. But it was literally maybe he needed a body to inhabit, but you didn't need to show the mirror scene. You could have gone back to this guy's apartment and been like, oh, well, I guess I'm living this guy's life now. I, but again, with all the magic in the world, we're literally in the Middle East. You can make a wish and walls appear out of the ground, right? Like you, the rules, the, why'd you need to do that? You didn't need to, it wasn't a plot. The Freaky Friday was not a plot device that helped move the plot forward. Drug no, actually, I actually think that that's actually a great point. Like they didn't ever, they never even use this guy. You're right. You know, if you're going to have Steve, I Trump mean, his wardrobe, they use his wardrobe. Uh, yeah, exactly. But if you're gonna have Steve Trevor embody this other guy, why not use his skills or his access? Otherwise, he's uh, he's literally just a weird plot device. And because he's this weird plot device, we start thinking about all of these strange, the strange relationship of Wonder Woman having sex with a with a with a stranger because he's. But but even you know, even like had had he had he just been like mysterious mysteriously appears right in his old clothing at the party. Diana, I've been looking for you. Like, you know, I looked her up in the phone, but you could have done something with that. But then you could have gone back to her apartment for, you know, the sex romp, because then you could have had more time discovering the bat cave, the I've been researching magic powers, showing him looking at all the pictures of her obsession with him over the years. Like, you didn't have to go back to other dudes' apartment. You could have taken him to the shopping mall and have the entire scene at the shopping mall and had more 80s glorious moments. Like, 
you didn't need to freaky friday it well where where were they gonna have sex if you don't go back to the apartment i mean in the in the in the you go back to her apartment. shopping mall and the shopping no, you mall. Go back, you go back room. to her apartment. You go back to her apartment. Again, you go back to her apartment. That, yeah. Discover the one. <laughs> that's that's you thinking you, practically. That's actually smart. Yes, you you could go to the other person's apartment to have sex. Well, it's because it would have allowed you to have more exposition on Chris Pine or uh, Steve Trevor discovering what she's been doing all these years. Right, be it the research into magic, the obsession with his life, all of those things. That doesn't happen till the end, but you could have had just more moments of that. And again, the only thing, literally the only thing gained by going back to other dudes' apartment was the clothing scene, which you could have done at a mall because it's the 80s. That's true. Yes. That, uh, unnecessary, unnecessary waste, Roman. And to that, your point, Wonder Woman had her way with this poor guy who will never know that. Yeah, right? She rapes him. And that's what it is. But that's, we can only, that's, that's, this is the PG-13 movie, so we can't, they, you can't actually. Yeah, but, but that. some kid, some 18-year-old is going to see true. the end of the movie and come to that conclusion as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, so, so I'm right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's, it's a, you know, that, I guess that's some, some, it, it's kind of a weird movie that sort of brings up these these weird uncomfortable situations and uses sort of the camp to to gloss over it which i suppose there's sort of a charm to that but also it's so unintentional that it makes you a little bit like uncomfortable and not in a way that you want to be when you're watching wonder woman 84 another thing and again pure laziness is so in this movie a practical world ending event happens Right, literally missiles firing at each other, walls in the Middle East. People—I don't know why people were riding in the streets. I didn't fully understand that one, but anyway, you have all this chaos. This event that happened in 1984 in our collective memory, we will all remember, because you know it doesn't get undone. Because when um, Mando goes to see his son, you've got like chaos in the streets still, like or all the, the debris everywhere. And this is in the DC extended universe. I and again, I'm totally okay with DC making independent movies. But this wasn't an isolated incident that only a few people remember. This happened to the whole world. That time that guy went on TV and gave everyone their wish and there was fucking chaos in the streets and the Russians were firing missiles and that time walls went up in the Middle East, like all that stuff. How does that exist by the time that you get into the Batman and the Superman parts of the universe when this alien lands? Like the world is not primed from that was like 9-11 kind of stuff that was happening in the world in 1984. And the you literally had the thing to get yourself out of it. When he, you know, said, I renounce my wish, everything before him becoming the wish stone, you could have like reverted the whole world and gone back in time or something, right? You could have just created a time loop and closed the whole thing where maybe the only four people who remember is Mando, Wonder Woman, Cheetah, Chris Pine, who's now gone, and the guy who got his free coffee at the beginning, which kudos to that guy. He didn't give up his wish, but like... They didn't do that. And so now you've had this 9-11 traumatic moment in 1984 in the DC Extended Universe. And I that makes me mad about these movies like that have these world-ending events every movie. The entire world has been traumatized multiple times over. <laughs> like, at least in the first Wonder Woman movie, you know, it was in the chaos of World War One. Not a lot of people saw Wonder Woman doing the trench warfare thing. And not everyone saw the battle at the airport. It was still gods battling in an isolated incident. And so they didn't choose to isolate the world ending event. You could have had all the stakes in the world. But when Mando renounces his wish, you could have taken it all back. Just well, pure laziness. I think you've I think you've sort of isolated one of the biggest problems with the DC superheroes versus the Marvel superheroes, which is that the DC superheroes are god tier almost universally and the marvel superheroes have much more i guess grounded powers and much more vulnerabilities which means that more mundane threats can hurt the marvel superheroes versus when it comes to creating a threat that can actually disrupt the dc superheroes you literally need something cosmic something world-changing it's always saving the world and you're right that that does kind of inhibit the ability of kind of doing an extended universe because everything has to be sort of like world changing something that if wonder woman faces a threat it has to be world changing if superman faces a threat it has to be like world changing and so you have these constant changes which kind of keeps you from actually 
managing a full-scale continuity uh, but, across, uh, but, across but multiple But I disagree heroes. because I think Wonder Woman works in the world of gods and Ari's possession in Wonder Woman 1 was kind of a thing. And he was the god of war, but he did it super subtle style that no one knew it was Ari's, right? And so you could have done stuff like that, the mischief maker in the background. And again, one thing, I didn't like a lot of things about Superman v. Batman, but that whole movie, I and I didn't like Man of Steel, but the end of Man of Steel, it's like disaster porn. They wreck Metropolis in the fight between Superman and Zod. And that's literally the whole reason Batman hates Superman. Again, a lot of things I don't like about the movie, but you go, just go watch the trailer for Batman v Superman. And it's showing the destruction in Metropolis and Bruce Wayne watching like all of his employees dying in his Metropolis office, right? So you can have real world consequences of the traumatic event. So when Superman comes to Earth and battles another Kryptonian in just 9-11 event in Metropolis, there's consequences that carry through. But in Wonder Woman 1984, you had an even worse event than the 9-11 of Metropolis years later. You literally had everyone in the world descending into madness and chaos. And again, you could have done it because at the end you could snap your fingers and just do a take back. Like you literally had the plot mechanics to take it back and you made all sorts of other choices with these rules to not do. And that's just what makes me mad. Well, you can't snap your fingers and do a take back. That's a Marvel thing. Clearly. Um, but what you were saying about Batman versus Superman and then Man of Steel kind of lining up, that's all Zack Snyder, right? So you've got one guy who's sort of like, who at the time is sort of overseeing the DC Extended Universe, just like Kevin Feige, Feige, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, is kind of doing not, the same. Not Paul Feig, but no, but, but Zack Snyder was an executive producer on this movie. Sorry. On yeah, but I mean, what does that mean, though? Does that mean he just has a credit or does that mean he's actually he's 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 making storytelling decisions? Because, the I mean, like, let's how does the world of Justice League, of Batman versus Superman, of Man of Steel align with the world depicted in Wonder Woman 84? They're completely different universes. Yes, there's consistency. No, it's no, no, no. What I'm, te- I'm I know, like, yes, from a narrative perspective, it's the same universe. But from a tonal perspective, it's a completely different universe. I'm okay with One tone. I'm okay with together. tone being different. This the beauty of the DC extended universe. The beauty. There's a, be- there's a beauty to it. Okay, no, the beauty. Never mind the Zack Snyder version of it. But even Zack Snyder feels like it could have been a continuation of Chris Nolan because you've got old grizzled Batman, maybe who lived through all the Man of Steel, the chaos in Gotham with Rachel Ghul and all that stuff. Yeah, it feels like it's a lived-in world, and Aquaman and Shazam exist in that world, and those movies are totally different, and they are batshit crazy, and they are fun. I'm okay with tonal differences. That's the beauty of the DC movies, is they say, "Hey, director, you have a vision, go do it," but still play in the sandbox. At the Why end of Shazam, need... so go. Sorry, go on. No, at the end of Shazam, Superman shows up. The, the teen Billy Batson worships Superman. His roommate worships Batman and has like a batarang that he killed a criminal with. Like it's so I can have tonal differences is what I'm saying. And all I'm saying, again, it's just they literally created like godlike powers. <laughs> and so you could have snapped it back. But the world, it, it kind of breaks the shared universe, because by the time you get to the modern era, the 2020s, when Man of Steel and all these things come out. We've already had like the world ending, like descent into madness of Wonder Woman 1984. So and that's what, what I'm saying. It just, it just doesn't hang with me. Well, what's the benefit? I mean, so the tonal differences actually do bother me because it just feels so inconsistent. It feels like it, it, even though it's the same actress and it's supposed to be the same universe, it feels like complete different universes. So my question then was, what is the value of having a shared universe then besides, you know, getting fanboys to freak out? It's about knowing it's a lot it's, to the point of fanboys freaking out. It's, it's a lot of the stuff that, you know, Brody talks about in Mallrats. Like these guys all exist and they kind of know each other. And to be clear, at this point in the timeline, Diana's never met any of these people. Right. This is the period where Diana's trying to be super hidden, not let people know she exists, etc. She doesn't really come out onto the world stage until the Zack Snyder movies. But she she started. And again, the first Wonder Woman movie existed in this universe. It did. She was. It was their Captain America, the first Avenger. It's yeah. just she wasn't like a propaganda prop of the government. She was just a badass doing stuff on, on the world theater that no one really knew about. And I guess what I'm saying is 
And again, even tonal difference. It's the 80s, man. The whole tone of the 80s was different. Like, it's okay to be camp. Um, This movie does exist squarely in the Snyderverse. It's fine. But all I'm saying is there was a traumatic event in 1984 now that we just decided to completely ignore. And again, I know those movies were made beforehand, but you literally had, again, pure laziness. You literally had the plot device with gods to like undo it or erase everyone's memory or do something. I don't, I, just I mean, I, I, I guess my, my, my pushback is I just don't like that plot device because it feels like just the easy way out. Like it's Professor X wiping everyone's memory. It's, it's the Hulk undoing the snap. It's but sort it, of well, like everything that you back, thought. Back to Professor X in X-Men First Class, they played a part in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in the next right. X-Men movie, in that uh, series of the X-Men prequels, there's a lot of talk about mutants' role in government. You know, like the, what killed me about, uh, I think it's, days of future past and that one had time travel so it's okay but like magneto literally drops the stadium around the white house and i'm like oh shit how's the world gonna react to this well the next movie they're talking about that time magneto did that thing to the president and like say what you will about those movies but at least they owned the consequences in their continued history and that's what wonder woman 84 is choosing not to do unless wonder woman 97 says which will probably be the next movie um fresh prince of bel-air will make an appearance unless in that movie they're like oh shit remember that time we all went crazy and got a wish like yeah well i mean to be fair though wonder woman 84 is the one that started it all it would be on the owners of justice league and man of steel to actually you know incorporate that if you know, if the filmmakers wanted to, and of course that would be impossible. That was impossible because Wonder Woman 84 wasn't even a thought. Well, wow. Imagine if you had an executive producer who knew that could be a plot hole in the literally shared universe that he created playing a role with the movie's creation. Again, pure fucking laziness. And I put that one on Zack Snyder. Like if you played a part in this movie, then you could have kind of figured a way to button it up in your own universe. Uh, I mean, he'd have to retcon it. I mean, he'd basically have to. I mean, no, have to no, I'm, no. He doesn't have to retcon anything. He knows that he's already created a shared universe of things that happened thirty years later, and he's playing a role in the creation of Wonder Woman eighty four. He could have been like, "Hey, Patty, I know this thing's really cool that we're doing, but we got to figure out how it's going to live in this universe. So just let's make sure we we have some Professor X mind wipe or something." And again, they could have. Maybe they did argue about it, but my point is, he played a role in this movie, and the fact that they chose not to tie that knot is again a piece of laziness you could have made it work and there just, that's the point everything in this movie there were things they could have done big plot holes small plot holes micro character moments that could have made it work and they consistently chose to ignore them it was lazy. yeah yeah I, I agree that it's lazy i don't think it's tie-in with the extended universe is is an aspect of that because i actually kind of thought of wonder woman 80 i actually kind of think of the wonder woman movies even though they are tied to the dc extended universe as standalones i know they're not but it always feels like the the callbacks they have to you know in the end of wonder woman you know bruce wayne's letter shows up um you know those callbacks to the extended universe almost feel sort of obligatory like oh let's just throw this in to please the fanboys it doesn't feel like a like an actual part of the movie so i've always kind of felt wonder woman and wonder woman 84 it's 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 its own universe and again what kills me is what worked about wonder woman as a character you know they introduced her in superman v batman and then put her in justice league later but then when they made the wonder woman movie they were like this woman's been around she's been doing stuff She's been a mystery. No one really knows about her. And so there would have been a way. Even they did it in the mall scene. They did it in the mall scene. Everyone sees her doing her shit. But then the TV reporter is like, we don't have accounts. But was there a woman? It was so weird. So she's operating on the world stage, but in the background. She can do all the cool action set pieces, but it's like there's accounts of this woman doing stuff. And again, to be fair, she wasn't like fighting in Central Park and everyone saw her in the movie. But the consequences of her stuff, I don't know. I just, um, yeah, you could have I melted mean, it should, in better. She should probably wear a mask, but of course, Wonder Woman doesn't wear a mask because otherwise, she's got to like find the cameras and throw her tiara at at, at no, all. No, I mean, yeah, that was terrible too. Well, I mean, they weren't recording it constantly to the cloud like we'd earn the day, but like, no, because she's pulling a Superman Clark Kent. You hide in plain sight. That's fine. Yeah, Superman should probably wear a mask too. Whole face. <laughs> have you seen the uh, have you seen the uh when lois and clark was on tv 
and Dean Kane, who plays Superman, was hosting SNL. No, Terry Hatcher, who played Lois Lane, was hosting SNL. And, you know, the running joke is, how can she not see the difference? And, like, every cast member shows uh, up wearing Nancy, glasses, and she's freaking out. Us <laughs> who are you? I'm Nancy Walls. No, you're not Nancy Walls. No, yeah, it's me, Nancy. Nancy! Oh, God! Oh, you wouldn't believe it. There was just some crazy woman up here pretending to be you. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just these glasses. Here. Here you go. Now look right. in the monitor. See? See? Who is that woman? <laughs> I, I, I before we, we sign off, I just kind of want to leave us with Paul Schrader's review of what or his Facebook review of, of Wonder Woman. Uh, Paul Schrader, if you don't know, he is the famous writer director. He wrote Taxi Driver and he wrote Raging Bull. His uh, he, he wrote and directed, I think, the Ethan Hawke movie First Reformed, as well as Affliction starring Nick Nolte. All of his movies are about deeply, deeply unhappy characters who usually re- resort to some sort of a uh, homicide or violence in order to anyway so Paul Schrader's review of Wonder Woman um, on Facebook is when a man looks into Gal Gadot's eyes he sees what a woman sees when she looks into a puppy's eyes and then one of his commenters wrote back please tell us you thought it was a terrible movie though and Schrader writes back what movie you know how you can stare for hours at your dog watching squirrels that was me watching Wonder Woman <laughs> that's about right that's about right (laughs) well i hope we never have to feel so moved in a bad way about a movie that we have to interrupt our regularly scheduled comic book reviews (laughs) why if i if i loved if we love wonder woman we should have we should i think we would have done a review um anyway it's also kind of the first superhero movie that's been because, released in a while there, by Dindabu, kind of like no, the first big blockbuster movie. There's no commenters on the internet about comic book movies, Ryan. <laughs> no. It's a completely greenfield opportunity, as the uh, as the tech bros might say. You sound like a marketer already. But Ryan, now that we're done watching Wonder Woman 1984, what are we reading next week? All right, next week we're going to get kind of weird. We are going to read a graphic novel called Upgrade Soul by Ezra Clayton Daniels. And I want to tell you what it's about, but I'm not going to do that because I think the colder you go into this one, the better it is. Now, we might have teased Upgrade Soul a few weeks ago, and then we kind of screwed with the schedule a little bit. But I promise you next week we are going to read it. And I highly suggest if you are one of the three people listening to this podcast that you read it first. Because we're going to give spoilers, and I think it's important uh, to really kind of appreciate the surprises of this of this comic. So I'm not going to say anything else other than read Upgrade Soul. We're going to review it next week. It's so weird, and it's so good. Just like this podcast. <laughs>